Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. I'm so pumped that you are joining us today to have Dr. Dr. Chad McIntosh. Uh, we'll be rolling in just a minute. As always, this podcast is brought to you guys. Um, we support the podcast. If you value what we do, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. Apologetics. Uh, we have a goal of one new patron a month. So if you could do that, that'd be huge. But today I have Dr. Chad McIntosh. I'll bring him on. We're going to be talking about a paper uh, called Of Monsters and Men. I was thinking of mice and men when I, when I was reading it, which I think is a real thing. Um, a spectrum view of the Mago Day. Chad, what's up? How are you doing? Great. How are you doing, Zach? I'm good. I'm just Googling right now as I'm here of mice okay, of mice and men, a 1992 film based off of Giants. I was like, that sounds so familiar. Um, so. Well, there's an old play, an old musical of mice and men. And then there's a band called of monsters and men. Uh, so it's, there's kind of a play there that, that I picked up on. I was, I was obviously going for, yeah. <laughs> well, it works. Cause you got me thinking and I didn't think about the first time I went through the paper, um, of, Mo but now we were talking about of monsters and men and the Imago day. So Chad, just in case people like don't know who you are, you've been on the podcast a few times. Do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do before we get rolling here? Sure. Graduated from Calvin college. Well, now it's Calvin university, but, uh, I guess I'm old enough now to where the name changed. Uh, Calvin College with a BA in philosophy, went to Cornell University and got my MA and PhD in philosophy. After that, I was doing some adjuncting work uh, at some local universities, but COVID hit and, you know, I'm just not into the whole online uh, teaching thing. So I've just camped out at home ever since and helping raise our family of three now, uh, a little boy born, born in February and two girls, uh, four and two. And uh, just living a life out here in God's country in central Ohio on 23 acres and trying to trying to trying to make it work. The only thing I think of when I hear of central Ohio is their Dutchman, that restaurant, because I, <laughs> I just we would play basketball. We play basketball tournaments outside Columbus and um, it's like Nazarene University, something like that. And we'd always do oh, their, yeah. their Dutchman. And I'm like, oh, I, swear I, I taught there Mount, Mount Vernon Nazarene University. I, I taught there for a couple of semesters. Yeah. They have a nice basketball gym. That's all I can say about the university. So. It's a beautiful campus. Beautiful campus. Mm -hmm. But on topic today, we're talking about this paper you wrote, Chad, uh, of Monsters and Men, a spectrum view of the Imago Day. Do you want to give like a broad overview of like what's going on here? Yeah. So this is a paper about the image of God. And it's a little different in that, you know, we'll get to this in a second. You know, sort of the different views of what it means to be made in the image of God are pretty well staked out. But no one, to my knowledge, has really written in defense of what I'm calling the spectrum view. Uh, but you can find uh, expression of the spectrum view in various authors like N.T. Wright and C.S. Lewis uh, and, and throughout church history. But to my knowledge, no one has, has, has ever really written or penned a, a sustained defense of it. And so that's what I wanted to do and, and draw out its implications. So I, I think... Uh, I'm pretty happy with, with how it turned out and I'd like to pursue the topic further and I'm glad to be on to talk about it. Yeah. I'm super excited for this. Um, just going through the paper, it's on Phil papers. If anyone wants to find it, and I'll have a link to it. Uh, and uh, it says, I was just reading the paper and it says department of philosophy school of hard knocks, Johnstown, Ohio. <laughs> What's that all about? I'm just seeing all these jokes. I'm like, wait, what? That's is a pure joke. You know, it's hard when, when you submit a paper for publication, uh, all the the interfaces, the electronic interfaces, they ask for your institution of affiliation, and I have none, right? So I'm I'm just a stay at home dad now, and I do philosophy on the side, and so I I just jokingly put things like that in, and 
uh, that's, that's, that's the only explanation there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into the paper. Um, obviously we're talking about the Imago Dei here, um, which is something very prominent in Christian theology. What is the idea of the Imago Dei, Chad? Yeah, that's a hard question because, well, let me ask you, Zach, uh, how many times would you guess that the image of God is mentioned in the Old Testament? That's a good question. I mean, you have in the beginning in Genesis, obviously it's mentioned. I don't know if I can think of any other time where it's mentioned. Um, yeah, I can't think of any. Yeah, I mean, for all its importance, it's mentioned just a couple times, just a couple times in, in, in Genesis. Uh, so the first time occurs, of course, right there in the creation account of Genesis in 126. It says that God said, let, let us make mankind in our image. In our likeness, so that they may rule over all the creatures. So God created mankind in his own image, and the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And this is repeated again a few chapters later in, in, in chapter 5. Uh, so whether you want to count that, I mean, it's repeated almost verbatim, so whether you want to count that as a separate instance is, is debatable. But but then uh, the only other time it's, it's mentioned is in Genesis 9-6, where the author appeals to the image of God as grounds for ethical treatment of fellow humans. So that's it. I mean, basically wow. two or three times that, 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 that's it. Uh, so, uh, it's kind of interesting for all its importance. It's, it's only mentioned a handful of times in the old Testament. Mm. So just thinking about this, the Imago Dei, uh, obviously I think a lot of Christians and a lot of like people in the past have like drawn on this as a super like foundational and important part of like a Christian worldview. And you're saying, Chad, here, like, well, it's only mentioned a few times in the Old Testament. Like, why is it so important then? Like, why is this something that, like, when we hear of Imago Dei, like, Christians and probably most non-Christians, like, know what we're talking about when we're talking about this idea of the Imago Dei? Well, we'll get to this in a minute, but I think part of the importance is, well, the New Testament authors really picked up on this, and the concept of the image of God really morphs in the New Testament. And it's, it's referenced a lot more in the New Testament, and we'll, and we'll get there in a minute. But um, in the Old Testament, it really was a, a, a revolutionary idea that all humans have this special quality, something that makes them very special. And, and we can't fall into this sort of a hermeneutical trap where uh, just because something is not mentioned a lot, does that means it's not important. That's, of course, like just bonkers exegesis, bonkers uh, hermeneutical practice, right? So um, despite the fact that it's only mentioned a handful of times, it is extremely important because it's a revolutionary idea of, of, uh, of humanity and, and, how, and, and its implications for how we treat fellow humans. So if we, if we think about, if we go back to your question, well, what is the image of God or what is the Imago Dei? So unfortunately, the Bible doesn't seem to give us a clear answer here, or at least the Old Testament doesn't. But the New Testament has more to say, which we'll pick up on in a minute. But what about the Old Testament? So scholars have poured over, because they are so important, they've poured over those few instances in the Old Testament to try to figure out what, what it means, what exactly it means to be made in the image of God. And scholars have really sort of, they, they've come to three different views here, Old Testament scholars. And one is, and this is the dominant view among Old Testament scholars, and it's called the functional view. Uh, what it means to be made in the image of God on this view is to function as stewards of creation in God's 
stead. And to image God is to, is to embrace the role uh, or the task that God has delegated to human beings in, in his creation. And this, this is the view that most Old Testament scholars like, like Richard Middleton in his book, The Liberated Image, very, very um, influential book on the image of God that God takes. Second view is what's called the relational view. And what this view is, is that what it means to be made in the image of God is, is found in our capacity to relate to other persons as persons. It's to, it's to stand in like I, thou, or, or me, you sort of relationships. Uh, and then the final view is what's called the substantialistic view. And here, and this is very popular among the reformers, and it's, it's probably the dominant view today um, among mainstream thinkers on, on the image of God. And here it's just that what it means to be made in the image of God is, is to be the same kind of thing that God is, uh, in, partic in particular, a rational moral agent. So we have the functional view, the relational view, and the substantialistic view. And here, you know, when I, when I embarked on writing a paper on the image of God, all the debate is between these three views. And I'm just like, I don't have a dog in this fight. Like, if anything, insofar as that, you know, there, there is a fight, it strikes me as kind of silly because all three of these views seem compatible. And uh, maybe there's some kind of hybrid view of all three. That's the best way to think of what it means to be made in God's image, according to Genesis. Uh, but that, but that is the lay of the land of, uh, uh, as far as how uh, the Old Testament passages are uh, are seen on the topic. Hmm. Okay, yeah, that's really helpful. Thanks, Chad. Um, so we have these different like ideas with relation to like the Imago Dei. Now let's talk a little bit about like the spectrum view. Uh, this is the view you're going to develop, and we're going to use to like talk about different things. What is the spectrum view of the Imago Dei? Yeah. So as far as I can tell, it's this what I'm calling the spectrum view is consistent with all three of those views I laid out just now, the, the functional, the relational, the substantialistic view. But I build up the spectrum view in, in four steps. So first, bearing God's image is essential to being human. It's part of what makes us human is that we bear God's image. Second, bearing God's image means that we resemble God in some special way or in, in some salient way. Uh, and I call it the spectrum view because resemblance comes in degrees. Uh, and, and that implies that we can resemble God more or less. We're on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. We can be, we can be more or less human. And that's sort of the, the, the radical part of the view. Uh, and maybe, maybe the most radical part of the view is the last step is that I argue that we can cease to resemble God in any salient way and, and therefore cease to be human entirely. So that's, mm -hmm. that's what I'm calling the spectrum view. Okay. So when we're looking at the spectrum view, it's not saying like, oh, like the functional view and the relational view and the substantialistic view, like these views are false, like this view is right, but it's more of a like another way of thinking about it that like that can like encompass these other views. That's right. Yeah, I think I think some maybe some uh, adherence to the substantialistic view of God's image, maybe they might take exception to some of the details of the spectrum view as I lay it out. But for the most part, I think all, whether you you're you're you take the functional view, relational view, or substantialist view, I think you can you can adopt uh, the the broad strokes of what I'm calling the spectrum view as well. Okay, where does like the spectrum view come from? Like, is this something you've come up with? Is this something that you're drawing from other thinkers? Like, like where's this idea coming from? It's mentioned sort of in passing all throughout church history. Um, 
when I mean it's 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 almost ubiquitous among the church fathers when they say things like you can mar or deface or damage or corrupt the image uh, of God within us. Uh, but what I really started thinking about this is uh, I read a, a small book by N.T. Wright called Following Jesus, and uh, he says some things about he relates the image of God to our being humans, and and he says, well, if we can we can mar or deface or destroy the the image, we can mar or deface it or destroy our own humanity. And and I thought, well, that's an interesting point. And then the more I sort of read up on things, I kept coming across this and. It's prominent in C.S. Lewis's writings, which we'll, I hope we'll get to in a minute. Uh, so, but as far as I know, no one's actually really encapsulated the view in a systematic fashion like I've like I've tried to do here. Okay, well, let's start like developing this view of the spectrum view, Chad. Where do you want to start? Like when we're starting to think about what this like means? Yeah, so let's just follow the steps as I laid them out. Uh, the first is being that uh, the, what it means to be human is to be made in the image of God. Or in the words of Karl Barth, uh, man would not be man if he were not made in the image of God. Uh, so no one really disagrees with this point. Uh, the controversy mm -hmm. uh, on this point uh, isn't isn't really that uh, that's to be made in the image of God is essential to being human. The controversy is whether or not there are other creatures who also are made in the image of God. And so mm -hmm. these the debates would surround things like angels or uh, extraterrestrials, intelligent extraterrestrial creatures, if they exist. Uh, so that's really the, the only controversial thing. Well, it's not even really controversial to say that it's essential to being human to be made in the image of God among theological circles anyway. Um, controversy just surrounds whether there are other creatures made in the image of God. Uh, I don't know if you had any rabbits you wanted to chase on that, but uh, otherwise, that's probably the least controversial aspect of, of the spectrum view as I build it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So with the spectrum view, you're saying something like that all it's just essential to like being a human that like you are in the image of God. Like if you aren't in the image of God, you're not a human. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So then you would say like, and maybe this gets like off a, to a tangent, but like even maybe like this isn't about like cognitive capacity. Like someone could say like a newborn, like there's someone that's like made in the image of God um, as well. Yeah, so there's a book, I forget the what's what's the author. There's a book where he rails against uh, s at least some version of what I'm calling the spectrum view because of things like this. If we uh, if we identify the image of God as as sort of a cluster of properties like rationality or free will, moral responsibility, and then we sort of we see that these are exhibited by people in degrees, well, that that's going to mean that people are more or less human. Well, later on, I'll, I'll just bite that bullet and I'll say, yeah, that's true. Uh, but it doesn't have doesn't have the sort of uh, absurd consequences that he thinks it does. Um, but uh, I, I, I want to say that's not ration pinning it all on rationality or free will or something like that. I think that's kind of a mistake. Uh, I, I think uh, the, the question is going to be uh, because because the next step is that uh what it means now okay so uh if the first step is what it means to be human is to be made in the image of god um and i say uh what it means to be made in the image of uh let's just think about it what does it mean to be made in the image of something well it means to or or the image of likeness something well it means to reflect or to represent or to resemble or to copy or to picture something in some way right 
uh, well, this is this cluster of concepts. This to reflect, re represent, resemble, copy, picture. I think most most fundamental here among this cluster of concepts is resemblance, um, because if you think about it, you know to 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 reflect or copy or picture something is clearly to resemble it in some way. Now, representation is a little trickier because you can you can have representation with and without resemblance. So, for example, uh, representation with resemblance would be like uh, a painting of a landscape or a painting of a portrait, right? Both represents the landscape and it also resembles the landscape. It both represents the person and it, and it resembles the person. Now, representation without resemblance would be something like a flag, a country's flag. So it represents the country, but the flag itself doesn't doesn't really reflect the country. I mean, unless you have like the geographic outline of the of the country like stamped on the flag, it's not going to resemble the flag the country in any in any way. So so the question is, all right, if resemblance is really the fundamental concept here, why go with resemblance? Why go with representation without resemblance, right? Uh, what what is that what we could mean by by being in, in the image and likeness of God? It's just purely representation without resemblance, like a flag. And here I think the answer is no. And the reason is given in, in the, the meaning of the Hebrew words themselves for, for image and likeness. So image, the Hebrew word is tselem, and that's derived from a root that means to carve, like as you would carve like a little statue or figurine, hmm. right? Um, so and the other word for likeness is demuth. And demuth is derived from a root that means to be like, like to actually to look like, as in like a similitude. So in the Hebrew, the pairing up of tselem and, and demuth suggests representation with resemblance, not without resemblance. Sort of like how a king's portrait is on a coin. Uh, it, it both represents and resembles the king. So my contention is to image God or to bear God's image. Um, it's fundamentally to resemble God in, in some salient way. Now, the question is, getting back to your original question is, what way, right? And how do we resemble God? That's going to be the main question um, mm. uh, uh, that, that, uh, that's going to start differentiating different views on, on God's image. Uh, how exactly do, do we resemble God? Okay. Yeah. That's super helpful, Chad. Um, so what we're thinking about is we're looking at like the idea of us being in the image of God. And you want to say that like, it's something to do with like the, like that we resemble God in some way. If we think about like God and his nature and what he's like, um, this like perfect being in some sense or another, like we resemble God in some way, which is really cool. If you think about it, like if that's true, like there's a perfect being out there. And in some sense, like each human being resembles this perfect being. Um, I'm tracking with you, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So it, it, what way do we resemble God? Uh, now, here, here is sort of a fourth view in addition to the functional, relational, substantialistic view, which so, is sometimes called the Christological view. And, and I think okay. in order to answer the question, how do we resemble God? If, if resemblance is the fundamental concept here, how do we resemble God? Well, here I think we should look to the New Testament. To fill this out, which presents the image of God as a Christological concept again and again, Christ is said to actually be the image of God, not to bear God's image, not to be made in God's image. 
Christ is actually said to be God's image. So here, Second uh, Corinthians 4, 4. God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. And of course, John, uh, Jesus himself said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, uh, reflecting this, this very this concept. So I would go in for uh, what's sometimes called a Christological uh, view of, of God's image, where uh, it's Christ. Christ is what it means uh, fundamentally. He he is the image of God. So how do you connect this up uh, to human beings? Um, well, uh, well, Paul Paul connects it in this way. He says Christ twice. He he connects the idea of being God's image, Christ being God's image, uh, with Christ being firstborn over all all creation. He says firstborn, meaning uh, preeminent in rank, like, you know, like, like first in stature, he's the most important. He's the, he's the best. He's the perfect example, example, exemplar. In other words, the incarnate Christ as God's image is also the archetypal man, right? So we, we are made in God's image in, in that we are made in Christ's image. So we, we bear God's image and so resemble him. Well, how do we resemble him by resembling Jesus Christ, the, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, and I love the way that uh, Greek theologian Panioidus Nellis puts this. He says this. He says, Christ was the archetype for those who have been created. For the old Adam is not a model for the new, but the new a model for the old. I think that's a great sort of pithy way of, of, of putting it. Well, pic picture it this way. You can think of it this way. Before God created man, in his omniscience, he knew what it would be like if the second person of the Trinity were to become incarnate in this world, right? He's got, he's got a, a mental image of what it would be like to become incarnate. And there, based on that knowledge, he fashes man in that image, in the image of what is effectively Jesus Christ. Uh, of course, not counting um, properties exclusive to, divi to divinity. So fundamentally, I think what it means to bear God's image is to resemble God. Well, what does that mean? In what sense do we resemble God? Well, we resemble uh, the incarnate Christ. Hmm. Okay, this is really helpful, Chad, because I think you're doing a really great job of like communicating this. Um, and I just want to make sure, I think it's helpful for people like just to hear it again. What you're saying is like with the spectrum view, it's essential to humanity. Like all humans are like made in God's image. Um, how is this the case? Well, we resemble God in some way. And what you're saying is how do we resemble God? Well, we resemble his son, Jesus Christ. Um, and that's something that you could think like, even like with these, like these counterfactuals and whatnot, you're talking about like mm -hmm. God creating the world can know that the second person of the Trinity, the son is going to become incarnate. And when he's saying in Genesis, like, let us make man in our image, he's thinking of Jesus, like in that sense, like something along those lines. That's exactly right. You got it. That's pretty freaking cool. If you ask me, um, that's the case. Yeah. So the, the controversy would be. Is this an appropriate way to understand how the image of God should be interpreted in the Old Testament? Because mm -hmm. there, there's some there's some people who would have some reservations with interpreting the old meaning of the old in light of the new. For me, I have no qualms or reservations about that whatsoever. So I, I think mm -hmm. we can we can definitely do that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know at all? Like, what do like Jewish thinkers think about like the image of God? Like in this context, um, like if you look at like, Jewish 
theologians because obviously like they're going to believe that like we're in the image of god um but they're not going to think that like it's talking about like jesus like do you have any idea about like where their thoughts would be in this discussion right about now no i mean i i guess their their reflections on what that would mean would just be limited to the the handful of instances in the old testament right and they're mm -hmm. just right there in in genesis so um i guess they would I guess they would just adopt either the functional, the relational or the substantialistic view while also maintaining that being made in God's image is sort of the ground for ethical treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, that's as far as it goes for them, which is pretty bare bones, right? I think we, what we have with the new Testament is, is a lot more resources to put flesh on what it means to be made in God's image. We don't have to settle for such a bare bones account. We have, we have a lot more uh, in the new Testament. Mm, okay. Yeah. That's super helpful. Thanks, Chad. Uh, where do you want to go from here? Well, so if we image God by resembling God and we resemble God by resembling Christ, uh, the implications of this are, are where the, the distinctive features of, of the spectrum view start to shine because resemblance comes in degrees. Resemble, things can resemble other things more or less. Right. Uh, so we can resemble Christ more or less uh, and be more or less like like Christ. I mean, that's just part of uh, of sort of the Christian life is to be more like Christ. So uh, this is exact. And this is exactly how the New Testament seems to present it as well. Um, in Romans eight twenty nine, for example, it says, God, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Colossians 3 and 9, you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in, in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Okay, being renewed, being conformed. Uh, these are degreed notions. Paul himself makes this pretty explicit in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when he says, And all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed. Or again, a, a degreed notion into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So it makes this explicit. It's a, this is this is something that comes in degrees. Now think about this: if you take that first part, and if we find our very humanity in bearing God's image, which is which is to resemble Christ, the perfect human, then the more we resemble Christ, the more human we become. So here's a question: what happens when this process runs in reverse. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the more the more we sin, the less like Christ we are, the less human we are, right? So we can actually like devolve. Uh, we we can lose our humanity in 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 the reverse process of of gaining our humanity by becoming more like Christ. Now that might sound harsh, uh, but uh, in in these are, but when you read the New Testament without certain blinders on uh or the, the whole bible for that matter i mean we all got blinders but 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 this might sound harsh only if you sort of brush over passages in the new testament which uh have some pretty uh pretty prickly descriptions to say the least of of uh the ungodly or the unrighteous or the unjust so mm -hmm. peter for example he describes the ungodly as unreasoning animals creatures of instinct and compares them to dogs and swine, all right? That's 2 Peter 2, 12 and 22. Pretty harsh, pretty harsh. Jude says something almost identical uh, in, in Jude uh, verse 8. 
And then Paul says of the ungodly, uh, and this is in uh, Romans 1, uh, that God gives them up to their dishonorable passions and to a depraved mind. Why does he do this? Because they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, this one's really significant because the glory of the immortal God here plausibly alludes to the image of God. In Scripture, we see time and time again uh, God's image being very closely associated with God's glory. Glory and image, glory and image, glory and image. It's very close association there. Uh, so uh, the other part of the of the spectrum view is just that, hey, uh, if part of what makes us human is uh, resembling God, resembling Christ, uh, we can become more and more like the perfect human. Well, the reverse of that is that we can be less and less uh, human as a result of, of, of sin. So that's mm. that seems to me to be a pretty straightforward implication of the spectrum view or, or, or of, of understanding the image of God in terms of resemblance. Okay, yeah, this is really helpful. Thank you, Chad. So these ideas of like, if I'm tracking with you, like, so we resemble God by like how we like we resemble Jesus. Um, and like, as we would like maybe like grow in holiness and like fighting sin and like growing in Christ, like this is like kind of the way that we uh, resemble him more and grow more and more like in his image. And in that sense, would you say like you're growing as you're progressing in like say sanctification, you're becoming like more human in that process? Would you say that? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think this is just what we more ordinarily refer to as the process of sanctification. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then going in reverse, then you're looking at it and maybe say like with like more sin and less holiness, someone's becoming less and less human. Yes, that's right. I mean, that's that's what I'm saying is is the implication of the view. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm maybe like I was listening to you, but like I'm still a little bit confused. Like, how is this like I, I just think back to like how people like justified like horrific like atrocities by saying like certain people are like less than human or whatnot like in our historical past mm -hmm. um with this view like could people say the same thing like looking at like a justification to like conquer a group or you know all these terrible atrocities have happened and saying well, well they're just sinners they're less than human or not less than human but they're less human than we are as holy people um how do you make sense mm -hmm. of that yeah i mean this is <clears throat> well uh so the, the the objection would be, well, your view your view entails that uh, if you tie the the image of God to having value, which Scripture itself does, so I, I don't want to disagree with that. Uh, and then we, the image of God is now a degreed notion, and now we have degrees of value between human beings. That's going to be a problem. Well, far from being a problem, I, I think this is actually a strong point in favor of my view. I just mm -hmm. think it's. Uh, I think it's painfully obvious that not all people are equally valuable. And I know that's that's an unpopular, uh, very anti-PC position to have these days. But frankly, anyone who denies that, I think, is just, just has political and sentimental blinders on. I mean, just, okay, just, just consult your honest, raw intuitions for a second, if it's possible, and compare a three-year-old toddler brimming with all the love, happiness, and innocence a child could, uh, of God could have with the most hardened MS-13 gang member on trial for drug peddling, child molestation, rape, capital murders, uh, who then smirks at his victims' families in the courtroom. All right, compare those two people. I, I think the reality is, and it's just un it seems to me to be undeniable, that the child resembles God to a much greater degree. 
and the world is a better place with the child and without the criminal. And that's just a fact. It's, it seems to me to be a fact that reflects real, a real value difference in the world that underwrites our, our intuitive judgments of justice uh, that are, and these are facts that are often muted or overridden uh, in, in the name of, of, of a popular uh, uh, egalitarian illusion that all human beings are equally valuable. I just think that's false. Um, I'm, when I was writing this, I was reminded of the uh, 2018 news story. You might remember this, Zach, where when uh, there was this young idealistic cu couple, I think uh, from New York, who set out uh, to, to, to bike around the world. Uh, and they made this explicit that, that they were trying to prove, they were trying to disprove what they called the illusion that, uh, that humans are evil. Evil is a make-believe concept that they've invented, and they wanted to prove that humans are kind. Well, they made it as far as ISIS territory before they were run off the road and stabbed to death as a reward for their uh, precious egalitarian assumption about human value. Um, so, he, but here's the germ of truth, all right? Uh, for, it to be, for it to be true that everyone is equally valuable, there must be some morally significant quality that's equally shared by all and only human beings. No one has been able to make good on that case, to argue for that case. The closest that you can get in the literature on human value and human rights is the image of God, is appealing to something like the image of God. But if human value is tied to the image of God, and I think it is, uh, we can bear God's image more or less. That means we could be more or less valuable. Now, uh, this is consistent with sort of uh, what you can think of as a, a minimal egalitarian view about human value, where uh, we could say that while it's true that not all humans resemble God to the same degree, uh, and so they can have more or less value, it could also be true that all, human, all humans resemble God to some degree. Right. So we don't all resemble God to the same degree, but we, we can all resemble God to some degree. And even that minimal degree of resemblance to God, which could be equally shared by all humans, would be enough for grounds uh, of, of ethical treatment and not, you know, brutal conquest or things like that. So I, I, that's that's how I would approach it. So in one sense, I would just reject the the egalitarian assumption that all human beings are equally valuable. But then I would also say that the view does have room for acknowledging sort of a, a minimum threshold of value that all human beings do have. What do you think? Okay, this is helpful, Chad, and kind of like drawing this out. So what you're saying is, in one sense, like like you're totally fine with saying like, yeah, like there's different degrees of, of value. Like someone in MS-13 may not have the same value as like a three-year-old like child, according to your view. And mm -hmm. you're fine with that. And what you're saying like is like I am tracking with you on the part about like more or less like sanctification, like coming to know Jesus. And what you're saying is to someone who wants to say that, like, maybe like everyone, like that, like the MS-13 member, the three-year-old, they're equal in value, is you have to find some sort of thing that we could like track human value to, like find something that makes, that shows like all people are like actually equal in that sense. Yeah. And I don't think, I don't think you could do that. I don't, I don't think there's anything you could appeal to um, that would show that the MS-13 gang member in our example is going to be of equal value as the three-year-old. I think that's that's a, a fool's errand. Uh, and it's been an exercise in futility. When you read the, the literature on human value and human rights, human rights, the story is one failed attempt after another to find something in virtue of which all humans are equally valuable. It's just not there. Uh, the, the most plausible accounts are God's image. 
uh, and, and here's, I mean, and, and you, this, God's image is taken very seriously in the human rights literature uh, for this very reason. Uh, now, the, the problem is how do we account for uh, some modicum of equal value with God's image? Well, it's like, uh, some, to some degree, not, not all, right? You know, you, you, we can all equally resemble God to some degree while also not resembling God in the same degree. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how do you think like this, like we have this idea of the Imago Dei and like human value. How do you think this tracks to like, I'm thinking about Tom Holland um, in his book, he wrote Dominion a few years ago where he talked about like, you know, like Christianity's influence on the West and like how he would talk about like, there's different connections where like Christians would fight for human rights, like because of the Imago Dei, because everyone is like made in God, made in God's image. Um, how do you think your views kind of fit with that? I think it's, it's uh, perfectly compatible. And, and if anything, uh, you're right. I mean, the, the, the concept of being made in the image, all humans are being are made in the image of God was revolutionary. It's absolutely revolutionary. It revolutionized the whole world. Uh, and, and in this way, I think um, even if we don't all resemble God to the same degree, what I'm calling the spectrum view, it, it should actually increase our sensitivity to how we how we view and treat others. Uh, and and uh, I think C.S. Lewis, whenever you have a, uh, an opportunity to enlist someone someone like C.S. Lewis to defend you, <laughs> you should. Uh, he's got a very good quote on this. Uh, he says this. I got to pull it up here. He says, it's a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror... And a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with an awe and circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, and all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. So really, I think the spectrum view should magnify to us the true gravity of all of our social interactions in just the way that Lewis says. One more question with like regards to the spectrum view that I'm thinking about is so I'm going back to thinking about like um, some like horrible human beings. So, you know, people have done like terrible things in the past um, and this idea that like, OK, in your view, the spectrum view, they're less human in a sense because they're less sanctified. They their actions and like their desires are way far off from like what's proper and holy for a human being. Um, what does this mean for like redemption? Because like I think about someone like Paul like in the biblical narrative and like in this view, he must've been, you know, persecuting Christians, killing Christians, like all these things, someone that in this view would be like considered like maybe like less human, or I don't know how you describe it, but then he comes to know Jesus and there's this like the amazing like redemption and transformation. So I'm just wondering like with your, like the spectrum view, how do you think about someone like Paul? Well, I guess we're never really justified in we might, we may never or rarely ever be justified in, and saying someone has ceased to be human. Uh, I mean, we haven't really got to the point where, I mean, so far all we've talked about is whether, uh, is, is that there are degrees. Uh, we, haven't, we haven't yet talked about uh, any reason to think that uh, 
uh, one could cease to be human altogether. Um, and I think I think the main reason we might think that uh, we could cease to be human is by appealing to something like horrendous evils, right? Mm -hmm. um, most most Christians in the in, throughout the Christian tradition who have who have talked about the possibility of of marring or defacing or or uh, or doing destruction to the image of God, they have stopped short of saying that we can lose the image altogether or, or cease to be human. Um, but I think I think we. And if you buy the fact that the, it, this comes in degrees, I think it's just a natural next step to think that, we, yeah, we, we could lose it. And by looking to something like inhumane um, evils or horrendous evils, I mean, int intuitively, you, think, you, you see some evils and it's like, wow, how could a human being ever do that? You know, like we, we, we describe them as inhumane. This is an inhumane action uh, and, and struggle to come to terms with how a human being could 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 do something so ghastly. And it's not uncommon to see people appeal to non-human agency to explain the evil, uh, evil human actions. Sometimes they'll, they'll say that they were under under the influence, demonic influence, or possessed by demons, or they'll they'll say Satan was at work, or something like that. Well, what if uh, sometimes that might be true? But what if there's a simpler explanation sometimes, and that's and we don't need to appeal to these secondary agents acting through human beings. What if it's it, it really is they they really have just become monsters, right? They they've 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 lost their humanity to such a degree that that's that's not what they are anymore. They they really have effectively become uh, like those for whom hell was originally created, Satan and his minions. Um, so just grant grant the intuition literally sometimes. Now what now when it comes to someone like Paul, we're never we're never really in a position or rarely in a position to to judge when that has happened to someone. And of course, God could always miraculously heal someone or bring someone uh, from the depths of, of that sort of condition and, and, and uh, revive them. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it's always possible. But, yeah, I think I think when we encounter the reality of horrendous evils, I think it's just an empirical fact that sometimes, wow, it seems like we're dealing with something we're dealing with a category of evil. That's, that's not entirely explicable in human terms. Okay. Yeah. That's very helpful. Chad, anything else you want to say about like the spectrum view before we talk about like making sense of like hell and whatnot, because you've been kind of like foreshadowing towards this. Yeah. Uh, I, well, not nothing other than just to say that it, it seems at each step, it seems like a natural progression, right? So, uh, to be made in the image of God is what, what it means to be human. Well, understanding the image of God uh, in terms of resemblance means that we can resemble God more or less. Uh, and so that straightforwardly implies that we can be more or less human. And then the final step is that we could lose our, our humanity entirely. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the view. Uh, and I think to, yeah, to foreshadow when we start talking about hell, I think one of the most powerful motivations for the view is that it, it out offers this very elegant way of interpreting all the passages in scripture uh, about hell. Um, yeah. So did you, did you want to uh, jumpstart that conversation about hell? Yeah, let's do that. I just want to say one thing that like, I appreciate a lot about you, Chad, and like why I love having you on is like, you aren't afraid to like answer these hard questions and have like tough answers that people may not like. Um, you know, there's things that you said where I'm like, Ooh, that made me a little bit uncomfortable. And like, that's a good thing to be pushed out of our comfort zone of what, like what a normal, like 
of a normal view and whatnot. So it's very, I appreciate you a lot for like what you're doing in your work and whatnot. Um, and yeah, let's talk about hell. Oh, thanks for those kind words. That was, a, this was the hardest, not the su- section on hell, but I have a section on, on the, uh, in the paper on human value. And that was the hardest section to write. And I did read a lot on, uh, human rights and human value. And I came to this conclusion somewhat, you know, stubbornly and thinking this just seems to be, this just seems to be the natural fallout of, of, of this synthesized picture of the biblical text and, and philosophically, mm-hmm. uh, whether we like it or not in our you know, current day and age seems to be an uncomfortable truth. Yeah, for sure. So uh, regarding hell, uh, according to the traditional view of hell, uh, not all people will be saved. Right. That's sort of a very simple synopsis of the traditional view. Universalists and annihilationists, they disagree, uh, where the universalists, they say that uh, eventually, anyway, all humans will be saved. And then the annihilationists, uh, they say, no, um, uh, humans who are not saved will eventually be be annihilated, just snuffed out of existence. Right now, all parties uh, in this dispute over the ultimate fate of of, of man they all appeal to their own biblical text and support of their view, right? So it's, it's, it's when you read this literature, it's almost like they stalemate. They all have their own favorite verses they appeal to, and we, we have the exegetical disputes. Um, now, he, here's where I want to come in with the spectrum view and say there's a sense in which we can all be right. There's a sense in which uh, the, the traditionalist, universalist, and the annihilationist can all be right. Uh, so here, here's how I want to lay it out. I sort of model, I'm going to show how we might all be right by modeling an argument, uh, what I'll call the traditionalist defense after Alvin Plantinga's free will defense. Uh, and remember, and this, if you want to pull up the PowerPoint, uh, Plantinga's free will defense aims to demonstrate no logical incompatibility between these two propositions. Number one, that God is omniscient, omnipotent, and perfectly good and two evil exists or the reality of evil all right now the way he wants to show that these two are compatible is by coming up with another proposition that's consistent with one and it also entails two so that would be a proof of compatibility and he says the following proposition could do the trick three god creates a world containing evil and has a good reason for doing so all right that's a very very simplistic summary of of the free will defense so long as three is even possibly true, it follows that one and two are consistent. And so on this pattern, we can construct what, what I'm calling the traditionalist defense, which, which aims to demonstrate no logical incompatibility between uh, these two propositions here. That's the next slide. Uh, four, not all people will be saved. And then five. All humans will be saved. How do you reconcile those two propositions? Don't they, don't they seem incompatible? Uh, well, here's a third proposition consistent with four, and with four actually entails five. Six, all people not saved will cease to be human. Voila, right? We've done something. We've, we've, uh, we've, even if six is possibly true, then the traditional view of hell is logically consistent with the universalist claim that all humans will be saved. And it's also consistent with the annihilationist claim that all, all unsaved humans will be annihilated. Uh, and so, I mean, obviously the main idea is that the hellbound person loses his humanity by the time or at the time of his death. And the, the traditionalist can therefore embrace at face value those texts favored by both the annihilationists and the 
tradition, uh, the universalists, the annihilationists, which say, you know, they always pat, uh, point to the passages which, which say of the wicked that they will wither away or be no more or perish or be destroyed. Well, this, when a human person loses his humanity, this, this is what happens to them. A being belonging to the human, to the kind human is annihilated. Uh, and so likewise, the traditionalists can embrace at face value texts favored by the universalists, which seem to universally quantify over humans as, as recipients of salvation. The all in these passages, universalists uh, make a big deal out of is It's all, it's not all, it's not qualified. It's not, you know, some uh, implicitly restricted domain or anything like that. Well, we could agree. We could say that this is true. All humans are saved since no person who is not saved is human. No human ever ends up in hell. Uh, so this, I think, gives us a, a very eloquent rapprochement, as it were, uh, in the hell debate between the, the three views, the traditionalist, the universalist, and annihilationist views. What do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it took me a minute to catch what was going on here when you're looking at like four and five. But when you see the difference here and thinking about your view, it's like, okay, not all people will be saved, but all humans will be saved. I mean, I'm thinking about like if I'm coming at it from your view – where we're looking at it in the sense that like, okay, well, like being human is like being in God's image and God's image is like resembling Christ. And like we become more human as we resemble Christ and less human as we don't resemble Christ. Then we're thinking about someone that's not saved as someone that has like no resemblance at all to Christ. Is that what we're looking at here? Yeah. Yeah. They would, they, like, as I said earlier, they would effectively uh, become like, like those for whom hell was originally created, non-human persons, who were not made in the image of God. Yeah. Okay. So thinking about this, I wonder, I'm just kind of thinking like, what does that mean for like what hell would like be like then in that sense? Cause I'm thinking like when I think about hell, like I've always thought about it, well, not always, but like once I read the great divorce, that kind of gave me like a picture of hell that like mm. made some sense to me. And we're thinking about people that are like growing farther and farther away from God. Um, but it seems like even like in Lewis's picture, there still was like that humanity, maybe. I mean, I'm not a Lewis scholar by yeah. any means, but that's just what I've always intuitively like grasped from Lewis. Like, how do you like make sense of that with your view? Well, let's 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 look at what Lewis says. I mean, I mean, in the preface to The Great Divorce, I just reread that recently, too. Uh, he very strongly cautions against taking this as sort of uh, any realistic vision of, of the afterlife. Uh, mm -hmm. But here's something he says in The Problem of Pain. Um, now here, I've got this quote here too. Uh, he says, you'll remember that in the parable, uh, he's referring to the uh, Matthew 25 there. In the parable, the saved go to a place prepared for them, while the damned go to a place never made for them at all. To enter heaven is to become more human than you ever succeeded in being on earth. And to enter hell is to be banished from humanity. What is cast or cast itself into hell is not a man. It is remains to be a complete man means to have the passions obedient to the will and the will offered to god to have been a man to be an x-man or a ghost would presumably mean to consist of a will utterly centered in itself and passions utterly uncontrolled by the will it is of course impossible to imagine what the consciousness of such a creature already a loose congeries of mutually antagonistic sins rather than a sinner would be like so I, I agree it's it's really hard to imagine what what such creatures are like but uh i think the conclusion is we can't assume that they're 
much of anything like ourselves. Uh, I mean, we're not as bothered. Are we as bothered at the thought that Satan and demons spend eternity in hell as we are bothered by the prospect of, of you know, like people like me and you, humans spending eternity in hell? Seems to me like we're not as bothered by that, right? But what if, what if me and you, uh, people like us, well, what if we just become effectively like Satan and demons? You know, would that would that take the the rub away at all? Would that uh, soften the blow uh, to to think that we could literally become uh, creatures un so so unlike what we are now that it makes more sense that we would be in hell than we than we would be anywhere else? Yeah, that's. That's interesting, Chad, thinking about the idea of like a person um, who is maybe like growing in self-centeredness, growing in their passions outside of like God, um, whatever those may be. They're, they're going further and further away from God and these things um, that they ended up just like they lose all likeness to like Christ and something like that. Um, that's an interesting point. Also, like I think for some people that might be easier to think about someone like you know, talking about someone like that's in like MS-13 or like you could look at like Hitler or Pol Pot, like these people that did like these horrific atrocities. How do you think this might make sense of like people like there's always the, the question of like, uh, well, how does like how does God let like good people in quotes like go to hell like Gandhi, for example, saying that like you could know like Gandhi's like soul or whatnot and like what he believed. Um, obviously, there's a typical Christian answer that someone would give. How does your view like how would you treat that question? Like, would you treat it differently and thinking like, how could like a quote unquote, like say a good person who maybe is like constantly like serving the poor um, or things like this, but then ultimately like rejects Jesus or whatever that means. Like, how would that, like, how does your view like interact with that idea? Yeah. So here's where I would think that something like an the allegory of the great divorce would be more relevant because mm -hmm. I'm very open to post-mortem uh, opportunities of, sal of, of salvation uh, where where you, where someone, the, the kind of person that you described who ha basically hasn't uh, lost entirely, lost their humanity, as it were, uh, and and uh, become something essentially unsavable. Uh, some someone like that, uh, they might be in a situation where it's salvation is is possible for them still, uh, in 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 post mortem circumstances. I I'm very I'm quite open to that. Mm. Okay, so. It's not like, okay, that, that's helpful, Chad. Um, I'm trying to think what else, like, what else do you think would be relevant? Like, what if, like, what kind of pushback or like thoughts about your view of hell? Like, what have you heard from other people about this? Uh, I haven't heard anything really. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's an obscure, you know, it's, it's, I, I think it's a good paper, but it's in a, an obscure publication, this obscure venue. So it's probably not going to be read. Uh, and I, I don't really expect to be interacted with on this paper much at all. So probably more people will view this, uh, interview than will ever read the paper. So, uh, <laughs> I suspect they would, at least when it comes to the hell point that I made, they would just, they would, what I'm calling the traditionalist defense, they would say is just sort of a play on words. Uh, they would say something like, uh, well, what we mean is that there are still persons who were formerly human in hell, and that's that's what we deny, right? That's we, As a universalist, they deny that, or an annihilationist would deny that as well. Um, whether we call them humans doesn't matter. Uh, and, and so maybe they would push back there, and I would say, uh, no, it does matter. To be human is not just some nominal honorific, but it's a, it's a real kind of thing. 
It's mm -hmm. a real kind of thing. It's, it's a person who bears the image of God. And it's precisely because man is that kind of thing that hell is an unfitting place for him and why it's disturbing for us to think of, of humans being there. Um, so maybe, maybe they would push back there. And maybe they would push on the, uh, the ethical implications of the view, but uh, hopefully what I've said uh, in terms of uh, all having some degree of value, if not an equal degree of value, would be enough to turn back that objection. Okay, here's a question. Like, what do you think, like, how, what happens to, like, say these persons, like, in the eyes of God? Um, because, you know, like, as Christians, you often, like, we, we say and hear things like, oh, God loves everyone. You're in, you're in God's image um, and he loves you, something like that. And we're thinking about like your view, Chad, where people like literally like lose their humanity as they fall further and away from like Christ, the perfect being. Um, does God still love these, these not no longer humans, but just people like, how do you make sense of like God's love on like that front? I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. Uh, my inclination is to say God would still love them, but uh, I, here's another sort of um, unpopular view, uh, and that is that uh, it's perfectly, uh, depending on how you define these words, obviously, but I, I think there's uh, d divine hatred is a real thing. Uh, the Bible says that God hates things uh, numerous times. God hates divorce. Uh, we are we are called to um, uh, uh, hate evil, cling to what is good. Uh, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Uh, there's a time to love, there's a time to hate in Ecclesiastes. Uh, so you know the very very simplistic understandings of love and hate, I, I think, are not going to map very well onto how the Bible uses these terms. Um, I think it's probably even uh, possible to love and hate something at the same time. Um, I guess what I would want to think about and explore there is whether or not there's anything left to even love, uh, for someone who ends up eternally separated from God. Right. Mm. Uh, I mean, that passage in Lewis, not to press it, you know, uh, beyond its authority, but, uh, he, he imagines that there's, there's really not even a person left. He's there. What did he call it? A, uh, uh, loose congeries of mutually antagonistic sins. All right. Uh, and, and actually, there's some passages in Richard Swinburne's book on the atonement, uh, which are very, very similar to that, uh, where we can't even properly refer to uh, the damned as as persons anymore. Uh, but just uh, sort of like mere whatever, whatever's left that sin uh, clutches onto is what they are. It's not a person's proper. So um, that would also. So if you if you really like the, the whole hate the sin, love the sinner idea well if all that's left is sin then there's nothing left to love either uh so mm -hmm. that's a possibility uh but i would want to think more about it uh before i would really uh, come down uh, with a firmer answer on whether or not god still loves these people uh because it's really in my mind it's the same question of whether god still loves satan and demons okay yeah that's really helpful thank you chad and i think hopefully people found this very like edifying um, like kind of like thinking about this, um, dang, I had one more question. I just like, totally, I was, I was totally like locked into what you were saying and I lost it. And I'm trying to think like the train of thought I was kind of going on, um, before I lost it and it's just gone. I don't know. Um, well, think ahead. about just, just to add one additional thought there, Paul describes hell famously in, in second Thessalonians one, nine, 
as a place separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, remember what I said earlier, when, when glory and image are often very closely associated in scripture. So if, if hell is a place separated from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might and God's glory, then uh, given this association between glory and image, it would also be a place separated from God's image. Uh, those in hell no longer bear God's image. Uh, I mean, how could they? How, how could God's glorious image continue to be uh, born in hell is a, is a, is a question uh, for anyone who thinks that humans could be t- eternally separated from God would have to a- have to answer. Um, but it's just as far as the spectrum view, as I've laid it out, I think it has profound implications, not just for how we treat others, but how we live our own lives too. Right. Um, because if I'm right, uh, or if I, th- as I've been arguing, if I think the, the scripture supports this view, we're either moving closer to God in Christ or further away from him in our own humanity. Uh, and this is this is a sobering truth, or at least it should be a sobering to, truth, and and explains why Scripture uh, presents repentance as such a matter of urgency, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, Paul, you could almost hear Paul yelling at his readers. He says, come back to your senses. Stop sinning. Uh, why? He explains, so that we too shall bear the image of the man in heaven, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 34 uh, and 49. So. Uh, I think this this view makes a lot of sense of uh, not just the image of God in Scripture, uh, but the process of sanctification and the urgency of of turning and becoming more and more like Christ. How do you think your view makes sense of like we talked about like, okay, there's like these like terrible, like horrific people have done like like just terrible things um, and inflicted like horrific suffering on human beings. Um, And there's also maybe these people who have done like amazing good. Maybe they're not like your church going like professing Christians, but they've done a lot of good. How do you think this view makes sense of maybe like somewhere in the middle, like a person that maybe is like apathetic towards Christianity, but they're not like, like someone that we consider like, Oh, a terrible criminal or something like this. But like, I'm sure people have like loved ones and friends um, who may loved one and friends who like aren't Christian, but it's not like, Oh, they're like these terrible people on the sense of like doing like these horrific deeds. Like, how do you, how do you make sense of that? I think honestly, that's probably, and this, this is also, this also might fall in the category of one of those uh, hard on popular truths. That's probably where most of us are, Zach. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we're, we're probably, most of us are not the MS 13 gang members. Most of us are not um, mother Teresa. We're probably all hovering, uh, uh, on uh, on the spectrum somewhere close to each other and uh if anything i think this again this just highlights the importance of taking this seriously taking the process of sanctification and and uh regeneration seriously and trying to become more and more like christ and and not slipping Ch- chesterton has this great line he says only a dead only something that's alive can swim against the stream right uh dead things go with the stream and so we have to pay attention to to everything uh, in which direction we're going. Are we just going with the stream or are we going against it, uh, proving that we have life in us? So that's I, I think uh, we have to take very seriously the possibility that maybe we're hovering in a, on a place on the spectrum uh, where we where we shouldn't be. We should be a lot closer to 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 Christ than we than we than we are now. Hmm. OK, one more question on this, Chad. Um, how does like your view makes sense of like, I think a lot of people like when they're first like thinking about Christianity ask like the very, like, um, I don't want to say simple, but very like fundamental question. Like how could a good God like send people to hell? Um, 
in light of your view, like, how would you answer that question, Chad? Well, the, I would appeal to the same sort of standard stock responses as most defenders of the traditionalist view would. God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves. Uh, if, if there are selves even to send to hell or, to, or send themselves to hell, we talked about earlier, earlier about whether it's, you know, it's up for debate on this view, whether or not uh, we could even describe the denizens of hell as people. Uh, as opposed to, you know, so, you know, whatever sin globs onto. Um, but we would, uh, I guess we would, I would also appeal to um, standard free will type considerations uh, to make the point that God's not going to coerce someone uh, against their will to be in, a, be in a place that by the, by the end of their life, they would, they would regard as hell anyway. Uh, so, it's yeah i would i would appeal to a lot of the same sort of considerations a, a traditional defender of hell would okay um anything else you want to say on like the hell topic before we move on i have one more thing i want to talk about with you uh no other than that uh i think the spectrum view does give us this very elegant syn synthesis of the biblical texts and allows us to say that we can all be right right we can, there's a grain of truth in and all three views, the traditional view, the universalist view, and the annihilationist view. We could, we could say that we're all, we're all right in a sense. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, thank you again for, for coming on, Chad. I really enjoyed this. One more thing I'm thinking about here is like thinking about like Christian like sanctification, like for the Christians listening to this um, in your own like spiritual and like journey. How do you think like this view can help us to understand like our walk day to day as like Christians and like how we should be like living and walking in our lives? Well, uh, I mean, I would go back to the Lewis quote about the gravity of all of our social interactions. You know, you're, you're never going to be interacting with someone who's just a, um, who's not on the same trajectory as you. Uh, and so where they are on that trajectory is going to, in some part, it might depend on your own interaction with mm -hmm. them. Uh, and, and where you are is going to depend on uh, your of course, your faith, but also your works, uh, the spiritual disciplines you engage in, um, and throwing yourself on God's mercy. Uh, the, I mean, I, I wouldn't have any special uh, advice here uh, as far as um, becoming a, a more sanctified and holy person. Um, I wouldn't have anything more to, to add to that than some, someone like, you know, John Foster would in his book on the spiritual disciplines or uh, just trying, yeah, living, just living out the Christian life uh, and in step with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I think that's super helpful, Chad. And I think this, like for me, I just finished reading like The Way to Glory by C.S. Lewis. And like one of the things I, I finished it this morning, like just taking away even more is like, I'm like, geez, I just want to like focus more on like these eternal things that matter more because it's so easy to like get sucked into like Facebook or like for me, sports or just like music, mm. like whatever. These things that are like, they give us like that dopamine hit and like we enjoy. And like to, it's not even saying it's all bad. It's just like, compared to like the eternal nature of God, like there's something like so much more like bigger and more beautiful about that. And like, I'm thinking about your view of the Imago Dei and it's like, as we're growing, like and becoming more and more like Christ and like, we're pursuing these like good, holy things, like the spiritual disciplines, um, positive interactions, like these things, it just draws us even like closer to Jesus, which is like, Ooh, like that's, that sounds like what we should be really desiring. Um, yeah. So I, just rambled thoughts. I think that's right. And you know, the more, as you grow in the, in this process of sanctification and so forth, we should all be having our desires 
uh, open to having our desires change and for our desires to be, to be more in line with what God desires. Uh, and to, for us to be in a position, uh, hopefully later in our lives where we look back and, uh, in embarrassment at, uh, not, not having wanted the things that God wanted us, uh, but wanted for us. Uh, so yeah, may, may that be true of, of all of us. Awesome. Well, Chad, thank you so much for coming on today. This has been like, I think really helpful. And I hope for people listening, like it, I just hope it challenges your thinking um, or expands it or something along these lines. Cause it's definitely like challenged me and you've given me a lot to think about Chad. Um, any last thoughts or things you want to say before we wrap up here? No, uh, other than thanks for having me on. Uh, I haven't really done a lot of interviews lately. I, in fact, a lot of the philosophy world just sort of uh, dropped out for me for quite a quite a while. Uh, so it was it was a pleasure to to be on and start thinking about these things again. Yeah, I'm super excited that we got to do this, and I enjoyed this conversation a lot. And yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, how can people like follow you, connect with you, things like that, Chad? If they want to like just interact with you based off of like what they heard today. Yeah, so the best place would just be to go to my web website, camacintosh.com, where I have a profile uh, page on the website that's got. Uh, all of my publications and inter interviews up to date. And then the other side of the page uh, is the, this massive list of theistic arguments that I've been compiling for years and years. Um, so if you want to look at that, uh, they, they could look at that as well. Mm. Um, one last thing. I like asking this question at the end, like what's up, what's next for you? Like what, what projects are you working on? Are you doing stuff in the philosophy world? Like what's up with you in the future, Chad? So I've, I feel I have one step in and one step out. I've been in, in this weird limbo position for a long time. Um, but what's next is I'm currently editing this uh, this Four Views book on the Trinity uh, with William Lane Craig and Bo Branson and Dale Tuggy and William Hasker. That's that's fun to, uh, to have been working on. Hopefully that wraps up here uh, by the by the end of the year. And i uh, got a few other things working on. I, I'm, I'm in talks with uh, another Christian philosopher about editing a volume on uh, sexual ethics. Um, and uh, that's really all I've been doing. I've, I've kind of just, I, I spent a lot of time on this paper and there was a paper I, or a, a small thing I wrote for the L London Lyceum Institute on whether, on whether Christianity has a metaphysics. Um, that was a fun paper to write, but uh, after these, after those, I finished those two papers. I've just kind of turned more of my attention toward my family and and the homestead. Uh, so that's that's what I've been up to. And uh, other than the the Trinity book, uh, I don't really know what I'm going to do next. To be honest. <laughs> well, Chad, I appreciate you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you and your time. I always enjoy talking with you a lot. Um, I'll leave a link down below to your website and like the paper, so people can just see everything that's going on. And yeah, that's that. Chad, thank you so much for coming on. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Zach. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you everyone for tuning in. This is here in Apologetics. If you're new, I encourage you to like, subscribe, all that fun stuff. It means a lot. And if you value what we do, uh, please consider becoming a patron. Go over to patreon.com slash Apologetics. You can support for literally just a dollar a month. Um, and yeah, that'd be huge. And that's it, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Have a good one and God bless. We'll catch you later.